0: How did the draft riots and enlistment of black soldiers in the summer of 1863 affect Union strength? What actions did General Grant take that led him to overall command of Union forces? What battles was General Sherman fighting in the West to hurt the enemy deep in the Confederacy? For answers to these questions and more Civil War insights,
1: stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast. The official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, part four of a seven part series on the Civil War, I'm speaking with CMH historian, Dr. Matt Marges. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lee. So, a little background on Dr. uh, Dr. Marges he works with the U.S. Army Center of Military History as the historian for the Office of the Chief of Staff of the Army. He has been with CMH since 2017. Prior to taking his current position, He worked as a researcher in the Histories Division at CMH. His area of expertise is late 19th century and early 20th century military professionalization. He graduated with a Ph.D. from Iowa State University in 2016. His dissertation, America's Progressive Army, How the National Guard Grew Out of Progressive Era Reforms, won the Karras Award for Outstanding Dissertation in 2017, That's awesome. Congratulations. He's currently converting his dissertation into a manuscript for publication. Dr. Marges has written articles on African-American service during World War I and numerous book reviews. He recently published a chapter on consolidating gains during Operation Market Garden in World War II in an Army University Press volume on large-scale combat operations. That's that's pretty impressive. A A lot of great history work there. Thank you. Uh, so what am I missing? Tell me, tell me a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, Lee, I think you hit most of it. Um, but working in FPS, I also uh, and working for the chief of staff. I also do publications, work, work on the annual Department of the Army historical summary uh, that we release every year, every fiscal year. Uh, and that just kind of covers the general activities of the headquarters Department of the Army for that year um and it's a, it's a really good uh cmh publication that kind of covers what's been going on at the headquarters level that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really get to see right. um and so i've so I, you can see there's uh, the fy 2020 that just came mm-hmm. out uh the fiscal year 2021 is currently in right. uh review and production so we hope to have that out and so they're about a year after they usually yeah based on the timeline of writing it and getting it through review it takes about a year to mm-hmm. get it so um by the time that the fy 21 comes out we'll be writing Writing the 22. Right. Okay, great. And as usual with all our publications, they're available through our
0: website at history.army.mil, uh, including all the Civil War pamphlets, and we'll be talking about that now. So, um, all right. So at this point, in you know, we've, we've been going through all the different years and the battles in the Civil War. So let's start with an overview of the strategic situ- situation at the moment. So the Union just won victories here in July of 1863 – at Gettysburg and out west at Vicksburg. So, how are things looking for the Union? What's going on?
1: Looking at just that, things look really good, right? Uh, they've just accomplished two great feats. Uh, Vicksburg, th- the collapse of of that fortification there, allowed the U.S. control of Mississippi River, which was which was key for not only supply but also just for logistical purposes. Um, and of course, Gettysburg is it's it stops. The Confederate Army of Northern Virginia's invasion of the North. It's a major turning point in the sense of the Army of the Potomac has finally achieved a, a, a complete kind of stunning victory, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't really a complete victory in the sense that Lee's Army was still out there. Lee's Army was able to retreat back into Virginia in some, and kind of lick its wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other places, the the problems of the early war are still there in the sense that the U.S. Army still needs to defeat a confederacy that's spread out across a wide swath of land, and it still has strongholds throughout the South, and it really needs to defeat the South militarily and begin capturing some of these major points. And so even though things are looking good in the summer of 1863, uh, and some have argued that by that point the war was over in the sense that Hmm. the confederacy couldn't really stand up militarily for right. much longer. Uh, we know that it does go on another two years and it, it was far from over. At the moment,
0: we we know that um, Meade is still in overall command of the Union Army. Of the Army of the Potomac.
1: Of the Army of the Potomac. Yes. And then where's Grant at this time? So Grant right now, General uh, Major General Grant is west. He's with his his armies in the Western Theater. Uh, he's basically in command of of his forces that had just achieved victory at Vicksburg. Um, General Rosecrans, who we'll talk about in a little bit later, he's in command of the Army of the Cumberland, which is moving towards Chickamauga and Chattanooga. Um, so Grant, right now, is is effectively a, a a division commander in the sense that he owns division, meaning division of the West, not mm-hmm. an individual oh, okay, division. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he can, he controls some armies, but he's not in overall command of the U.S. forces yet. Right.
0: So here we are, 1863, July. Um, Union has some some victories. There's um, there's some hope, (laughs) I I think. And um, uh, but it's been two years of hard fighting, a lot of casualties. And um, the Union Army is having trouble getting people to enlist. Uh, There's a lot of pushback uh, with the draft. So can you describe what was happening uh, in the summer of 1863 and how did the army respond to it?
1: i think we can even look at the the current army today and see some of the problems with the volunteer force right it's it's difficult to maintain volunteerism throughout an entire conflict especially when casualties are high and at some point the, the kind of public enthusiasm starts to wane and that's happening by 1862 um, and in early 1863 two key developments happen that are going to influence enlistment and the army. One of them is the is the official passage of the Emancipation Proclamation that that President Lincoln announced in late 1862. That takes effect in 1863. Uh, so that's going to open the door for black enlistment amongst many other things. Um, in terms of bolstering the size of the U.S. Army itself, uh, the U.S. government passes the Enrollment Act in 1863. Now that's um, about a year later than the Confederacy. The Confederacy actually had a Conscription Act much earlier in the war. Um, But there there was definitely some pushback to the Enrollment Act uh, due to two kind of key reasons. The one being that wealthy citizens could buy their way out of the draft. If they provided $300, they could basically get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they could pay someone else to take their spot. Uh, and there were also some bounties offered, but you could basically pay a substitute. Uh, wow. It was often a half and half where you'd get half $150 mm-hmm. up front, join, serve in my place. And then if you survive the war, when the war's over, you get the other
0: 150.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh And. So th- those are, and that's a lot of money in the day. It was, it was, it was, it was a pretty substantial sum, and so there were definitely a lot of takers, and there was also the the kind of the bounty jumpers, people who would take, they would enlist one place, get a bounty for enlisting, and then desert, maybe change their name, something, go somewhere else, enlist again, get the bounty, desert, and do this all over. Uh, but the the enrollment act really starts. To feed into this concept of so you say enrollment act was that considered the draft? That's the dra- that's the the draft law. Okay. that was the draft law. yeah. Um, okay. and so it, it really starts to kind of feed into this idea that anyone who who even knows you know history of American military history late in the 20th century, this idea of the the rich man's war, poor mm-hmm. man's fight, right. And okay. that was really the Stokes of the flames of that were really stoked in New York City especially by the Tammany Hall political machine. This was, uh, it, it's run by New York City Democrats. There's, of course, opposition to the Lincoln administration. Uh, they were kind of known for going after immigrants, especially Irish immigrants, mm-hmm. and getting them to vote for them, promising them some some kind of perks or some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, some things, but getting them to vote for them, getting them to, to kind of stand by their position. And, they start to become sort of an anti-war faction in new york city sort of they're the ones that are kind of poking and saying you know look at who's look at who's really benefiting from this mm-hmm. not you not the not the irish immigrant um and they also start to kind of inflame racial tensions saying oh look not only did the lincoln administration just push through this emancipation act that's now going to bring all these freed slaves into New York, and they're going to be competing for your jobs, and they're going to comp- be competing for your livelihoods, but now they're forcing you to serve in the military, and someone else can just buy their oh, way out wow. of it. And so that really creates a lot of tension in and around the city, especially among these in the, in the Irish community in New York City. Um, and so the draft riots, the, fam- the infamous draft riots of mid-July 1863, only a couple weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg, really start... With from that, that that kind of tension that boils over, and on yeah July thirteenth, uh, a group of basically five hundred men led by. Uh, Engine Company 33. It was a volunteer <laughs> oh, fire company. Wow. Uh, uh, was this, the, Were they Irish? Or yeah, did, was it, okay. Predominantly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they attack on, on July 13th the draft station, basically, the place wow. where the draft was being committed or, or was being carried out, the lottery. Mm-hmm. And it was a lottery draft. It wasn't everyone. But mm-hmm. um, And there's no militia presence in the city because the New York militia had been pulled away and moved to Pennsylvania to do kind of rear guard duty, for the Army of the Potomac, in right. at Gettysburg, so it's really only the police department, the municipal police department, and over time, throughout the day, the riot just gets out of hand. The police can't handle it. Um, the, one of the big atrocities of that first day is the the rioters attack the Colored Orphan Asylum, mm-hmm. eventually uh, burning it. Um, and by the end of the by the end of the riot, it really became more of a race riot. Uh, Eleven blacks were lynched in the course of it um there were about 120 people killed as kind of the more believable estimates Mm -hmm. um and then at least you know thousands injured um it's going to kind of ease when uh general major general john wool who is uh the oldest commander the oldest officer in the u.s army at the time he was 79 years old by the time of by the time of the uh the riots Um, and older than Scott
0: Winfield Scott, I think. Yes, because Scott was
1: already out. He had already Mm -hmm. retired. So he's the oldest one left, um, 79 years old, and he's in command of the Department of the East. Mm -hmm. Not not a combatant command, but a, you know, kind of administrative Mm -hmm. command. Um, And he orders the militia to return from Gettysburg to New York. And then he's also going to bring 800 soldiers from around the area. Into the city, and they begin arriving on the fourteenth and fifteenth, and so by the sixteenth, with the federal troops in place and the militia back, the the, the riot kind of subsides. So in July, all this is in July, okay, mm-hmm.
0: and and so the the riots were really just centralized in New York. It, it, did it spread to any other uh, cities or towns? There,
1: there was there was opposition to the draft ac- across mm-hmm. the the U.S., but really it was the the New York City ones that are the the mm-hmm. the, the major riots
0: right and uh, but with um, General wool bringing in all these these troops back to New York that's um, how did that affect the um, the Union Army in, in in Gettysburg or in general
1: to be honest not that not not much yeah. uh, the militia that he pulls back from Gettysburg um, they wouldn't have accompanied the Army of the Potomac on any of its operations yeah. anyway uh, they would have probably come back by the end of the month maybe a little later. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 800 that he pulls from the Department of the East, again, they weren't actively involved in combat operations. Um, And once the situation subsides, they're able to kind of go back. So it it, it didn't have any like manpower impacts on the Army of the the Potomac, at least. Mm -hmm. Now, let's uh,
0: go back a little bit. You were talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, that blacks are now for, uh, forming units or are able to enlist. So let's talk a little bit about that. So with these, with black soldiers now, um, describe what those units were, where were they created, who led them, and what missions were they assigned? So the
1: the first ones are formed in the South. Uh, they're they're known as the the like for example the the one that we consider kind of the quote unquote first is the first North Carolina Colored Volunteers. Um, and those were formed mostly by freed slaves um, mm-hmm. or escaped slaves more more okay. likely at the time. Right. Um, because the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, only freed slaves in rebellious territory. Mm-hmm. But since those states didn't acknowledge anymore the federal government's authority, uh, it was really up to the military, in a sense, to actually... Mm-hmm. Pass the word, um, right. and so a lot of the first, the first few that were formed were in the South, uh, North Carolina especially, um, and they're formed mostly by escaped slaves, um, and they're they're not really given many, um, I, I would say, combat roles. Right, mm-hmm. they're they're doing a lot of support stuff early. Um, there's another unit formed in Louisiana, um, but by a spring of 1863. Um, there's the, the U.S. Army is starting to form volunteer regiments uh, throughout the the U.S. territories. Um, famously, the you know the the 54th Massachusetts, for example, right. is a, is a very famous one. Um, they're recruited locally. Uh, again, most of the people who serve in them, depending on where it is, uh, the, the are either escaped slaves, former mm-hmm. slaves living in northern territory, or people who are who are born free. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 54th Massachusetts actually um, was. Raised mostly in and around Boston, so a lot of those people who served in that were actually freedmen, mm-hmm. a lot of them from birth, oh, wow. um, and the, and there was various ways they were they were raised. Frederick Douglass was a very famous um, kind of recruiter mm-hmm. in in the Massachusetts mm-hmm. area. His son actually served in the fifty fourth, oh. um, and they're commanded by at, during the Civil War white officers. Uh, they are. And so, so they they eventually allowed NCOs to come from the ranks, mm-hmm. um, but the officers who led these units were were white. Um, and by the end of the war, uh, there were about 175 uh, all black re- regiments in the what was what was then known as the U.S. Uh, colored Troops. Mm-hmm. Um, there were about 175 regiments by the war's end, wow. which is almost a, close to 180,000 um, soldiers. And when you look at wow. the when the war ends in 1865, if you look at that 180. That's about one tenth of the entire wow. uh, manpower in the U.S. Army at the time. So mm-hmm. th- they will have a significant impact, and they and they will serve uh, in a variety of roles. Early on, they're kind of unfortunately mitigated to labor-intensive mm-hmm. roles. Uh, the idea that a lot of people had was they would serve doing building the fortifications, doing the manual labor mm-hmm. to free up. White units to go and, and okay. fight in the line. Uh, that's going to change a little bit later. Um, by the end of eighteen sixty three, uh, these units are finding themselves doing a, a wide variety of things, including some, in, mm-hmm. including combat support, a little bit of everything. All right. And then uh, you
0: mentioned uh, the fifty fourth Massachusetts, and uh, so for them, uh, they did get involved in some some combat. Um, and uh, it was uh, July of sixty three. Eighteen sixty three. Uh, union forces are attacking Fort Wagner again in South Carolina, um, and it's significant because this this attack was led by the 54th Massachusetts. So, can you describe that battle um, and uh, the the role the 54th played and the overall significance of that?
1: Sure. So, so Fort Wagner was located in uh, just south of Charleston Harbor, uh, on, and it and it defended Morris Island, mm-hmm. and. This was part of the at the time the U.S. Army strategy of of not only, you know, defeating enemy armies, but of course capturing, as I kind of mentioned, these coastal positions and then having, coast to, uh, harbors to move inland. So Charleston mm-hmm. Harbor was a was a key kind of strategic point that the U.S. Army is trying to capture, and Fort Wagner is the major impediment to that. Fort mm-hmm. Wagner is, uh, fairly formidable. It's it's mostly sand-based uh, walls and parapets. Um, making bombardment much less successful if, you know, these projectiles are landing in, in dense sand. They're mm-hmm. not doing a lot of damage. So it's a very fordable position. Um, they There's an attempt to capture it earlier in, in July of 1863 that fails. So the, the kind of famous Battle of Fort Wagner, the one that a lot of people think about um, on 18 July, 1863, is actually the second attempt that month. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is... Again, you think of timing. This is two days after the end of the draft riots. right? Yeah, um, it's only a couple weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg. And yes, as you mentioned, the 54th Massachusetts, commanded by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, uh, that is the unit that is going to lead the assault. Um, it, it, it's kind of immortalized in the movie Glory. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people have probably seen the film.
0: Right, Matthew Broderick. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, and it's it, there. There's some issues with the way the battle is portrayed in the film, particularly that it it, it kind of makes it look like the 54th was on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it spearheaded the attack, it was supported by, uh, there were nine regiments in total. Um, effectively, there were two brigades that were involved. Uh, the first brigade was um, commanded by General George Crockett Strong, and that's the brigade that included the 54th. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other brigade was commanded by Colonel... Uh, Held him in Putnam, um, and that that includes uh, the Seventh New Hampshire, and Sixth uh, Second Ohio, Sixth Seventh Ohio. So there, there's and, and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, it's it's a massive attack. It's two brigades, mm-hmm. as I said, about nine regiments that are going in. Um, but the Fifty Fourth is kind of in the center. They're leading. They're leading the assault. Mm-hmm. And in order to to capture the fort, there's. It's sort of a joint operation as well. There's a naval component to this. Um, oh, there okay. are monitor class uh, naval ships that are that are attempting to bombard the fort from the sea, mm-hmm. uh, and that is largely ineffective. I kind of mentioned before that that the the design of the fort makes kind of the sea bombardment kind yeah. of weak. And 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 part of the another problem was it was very difficult to get land based artillery into a good position to to attack the fort because of the the approach, the sandy beaches, everything else. So it's really the Navy is providing the artillery support here. Um, in order for the attack to work, the 54th actually needs to advance beyond a defensive position and then kind of pivot and oh, work its way oh. in. Mm-hmm. And so there's, again, there's, there's nine regiments. They're all moving in different directions. They're all trying to, to kind of converge from different points. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going to end up happening is the... They attack at dusk, and as they get within a few hundred yards, the they come under heavy fire. So there's a kind of a period where they basically say, "Okay, we're going to have to cross over a, a, a moat, and then we're going to take, and then we're going to wait till darkness sets in and make a, and make our final assault." Mm-hmm. Then, um, which they didn't have to wait too long. But when they finally do make the assault, they get within a few hundred yards. They actually get across onto one of the parapets, and that's just when they're they're basically the, the attack is repulsed. Oh, wow. um, the 54th is going to suffer, out of 600 men in the regiment, they're going to suffer about 270 casualties. Oh. So that's, a, that's of course, killed, wounded, and missing, mm-hmm. um, including uh, Colonel Shaw, who's mm-hmm. killed in the attack. Uh, Frederick Douglass' son, who I mentioned, he survives. Yep. Um, and there's, it, it's it's kind of portrayed again in the film as though they were completely wiped out. They weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did suffer heavy casualties. Um, and they weren't the only ones. Uh, in the total attack that day, there were over 1,500 combined U.S. Army casualties. Wow. And as I mentioned, 270 from that regiment alone. Mm-hmm. Of the regiments that were involved, though, the 54th suffered percentage-wise the, the worst of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's if basically kind of how it end, How the yeah. Battle of Fort Wagner ended. Uh, after the next couple days, the U.S. Army realizes they're not going to capture the fort this way. Mm-hmm. They retreat, um, and in the next few months, they lay siege. And by oh. by September of 1863, the Confederate defenders of the fort just decide to evacuate.
0: Oh, okay. So eventually, it, it goes into Union hands.
1: It does. It it, it falls and kind of literally falls. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's no longer the, the actual, the original fort kind of just mm. eventually. But it's goes no Washington longer City. an impediment to right. the Union
0: um, goals
1: and and by that point, by September of eighteen sixty three, um, the U.S. has made some other inroads too. So defend, kind of holding out on Morris Island, co- holding out in that position, no longer was right. tenable for the Confederacy. So it just kind of falls away.
0: And um, <clears throat> the uh, the success, um, or I should say, the actions of the fifty fourth, did that um, help? changed people's view of the black soldiers in that time
1: it certainly did for the army um it it showcased to the to army commanders that yes these soldiers could fight Mm -hmm. that there was of course racism at the time made a lot of people think that they that Mm -hmm. you know black people were just inherently incapable um this showed that that was not the case and that they were just as capable as as white soldiers and um, there will be some, you know, some heroics that come out of it. Um, mm-hmm. William Carney is one of the. I don't want to say first because mm-hmm. he will receive his Medal of Honor later, later in life, but yeah. it's the earliest action of mm-hmm. a of a in the United States military of a black man receiving the Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. um, and so the, there's a lot of heroics that take place, and of course the the unit will gain fame, and then as as I mentioned earlier, as the war goes on, uh, the the kind of the hesitancy to Use black soldiers in combat, it's still there, but mm. it kind of, it it wanes a bit right, but it's certainly still there
0: all right well, um let's shift focus now out out west uh so talk about the the Battle of Chickamauga. am I pronouncing that right yeah, <laughs> Chickamauga, <yeah. laughs> Chickamauga. Uh, and that took place in september of sixty three so uh talk about the two sides, who was in charge uh, and what happened
1: yeah, so at that time uh at Chickamauga, Braxton. Bragg, General Braxton Bragg, is in charge of the Confederate uh, Army of Tennessee. And the U.S. Army of the Cumberland is under command of Major General uh, William S. Rosecrans, Rosecrans. And he manages to capture Chattanooga with, without much of a fight mm-hmm. and then proceeds to move into Georgia. And his goal is to push from Chattanooga, Tennessee, the Georgia and eventually make inroads there. Mm-hmm. Uh, his army is arrayed in a way that his, it's almost a long line. Uh, he, Rosecrans himself, is in the, I guess you could call it the front of that line, which mm-hmm. in effect is the left flank of, if, if you were to look at a map and you'd sort of see the army stretched out, he's in the front, mm-hmm. but if you were to look at it from the side, that would be the left flank mm-hmm. in a sense. And General Bragg wants to, basically catch them as they move, and he wants to attack them in piecemeal. So what he does is he is going to, in September, uh, is attack the left flank of this moving column. And it's initially kind of repulsed. Uh, Bragg's initial attack, it catches the, the U.S. troops a little bit off guard, but they're able to, to, to retreat a bit reform a good a good line mm-hmm. and if you were to look at it at, in the military situation it would look pretty pretty straightforward mm-hmm. I, there are two lines um, Rosa though is convinced that there's a gap in the line so he's at this point again he's on what would be the left flank in, in his own line in his own line okay. yeah so he believes there's a that there's a gap sort of to the right so he is going to rearrange his force and move soldiers to fill that gap well there wasn't a gap what he actually does is creates a gap oh no so he uh-huh. he basically gave Bragg what Bragg needed Bragg then attacks and he exploits the the now created gap forcing kind of two thirds of the of Rosecrans's army to begin to retreat um, it's the one holdout is the center, um, and this is under this is where uh, General um, Major General George Thomas, his corps is holding out in the center, and they're going to basically basically withstand the assault. The problem with that is it creates a salient, um, effectively a bubble, mm-hmm. as the two left and right mm-hmm. keep falling back. Uh, Rosa, uh, Thomas kind of stays. Firm. Mm-hmm. He, this is where he'll earn the nickname, the Rock of Chickamauga. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it it allows him to be attacked then from from all yeah. sides, and he eventually has to fall back as well. Mm-hmm. What that does, though, is is Thomas's stand gives the U.S. Army forces enough time mm-hmm. to basically fall back in sort of a more um, sort of a more what's the word I'm thinking of? Not. Uh, it's
0: um, like a standard formation. Or, yeah, more. Yeah, you know? just
1: not, you know, kind of fall back, kind of organized. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. And they will fall back into Chattanooga. And, of course, again, the stand also helps to wear down the Confederate soldiers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're not able to kind of give the final assault that Bragg was hoping for. And instead, they're going to resort to a siege. So now the mm-hmm. so now Rosecrans and his army is held up in Chattanooga and they are, and the Confederates are surrounding them on three sides from heights, uh, particularly Missionary Ridge, Lookout Mountain. Um, so oh. very formidable, uh, and they are able to cut off Rosecrans from the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of falls apart there. Um, President Lincoln will will basically say that he was acting like a a duck hit on the head. Um, oh, wow. Basically, the the idea that some have put forward is that he was suffering from some sort of uh, PTSD or shell shock or just completely complete loss of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily for the U.S. forces there, help was on the way. Um, General Grant had already dispatched one of his chief and most trusted subordinates, uh, William Sherman, mm-hmm. who had an, his army of the Tennessee. Okay, uh, He had already dispatched him to Chattanooga mm-hmm. to attempt to... Reinforce Rosecrans. And uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had detached General, Major General Joseph Hooker's Corps Mm. from the Army of the Potomac earlier to move uh, move out that way. Mm -hmm. And he has about 20,000 soldiers with him and he's also moving in the direction of Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. So there is help on the way, but if you looked at the situation in late September Mm -hmm. 1862, it doesn't Really look good. Mm-hmm. Um, 63, 63, 63. 63, excuse me. Yeah. 63, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, on, on September 29th, that is when Edwin Stanton sends Grant. Uh, he's created this new department of the Mississippi, mm. and he sends Grant, he says, you are now in command of this entire department, oh, wow. which, of course, is going to include Rosecrans's Army of the Cumberland. Yeah. Uh, so Grant is going to go to Ch- Chattanooga, He takes overall command. He replaces Rosecrans with George Thomas, the the old rock of uh, Chickamauga, is Mm -hmm. now in command of the Army of the Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And so he has effectively, under his command now at Chattanooga, um, you could call it three armies. He has Sherman's Mm -hmm. Army of the Tennessee, which had come in. He has now Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, and he has Joseph Hooker's uh, 20,000 soldiers who are also... In route, who are also there. So, so now,
0: in command, um, what's Grant's strategy? What's his next plan?
1: So his first, his first kind of point is to get supplies in. Uh, they're being starved out. He needs food. Um, he needs food for his soldiers and for their animals. So he looks to the to Brigadier General William F., known as Baldy Smith. Um, Smith was a West Point graduate. He kind of career soldier, uh, graduated fourth, of his cl- fourth in his class in 1841, um, engineer by trade, or at least by military trade. Mm-hmm. And he's the chief engineer of what was the Army of the Cumberland. And, or what, well, of the Army of the Cumberland, <laughs> but now under Grant's command. Yeah. And he proposes this concept of we can open supplies from a different angle. And what it's going to need is you, if we can basically move some soldiers out of Chattanooga and get on one side of the river uh, cross over the other because Hooker's soldiers are coming from that direction mm, hookers mm-hmm. two corps are coming from that direction we can link up with them and kind of create and then kind of rather than trying to get supplies in th- the more conventional way which is coming under attack by the confederates who have cut rail lines and everything else we can bring them in from effectively the south in this sense because oh, wow. it's coming from from uh joseph hooker's line so and this this is a great a, a complete success they mm. uh there's um They open this line up. There's a few kind of short, small battles, some skirmishes, but they're Mm -hmm. able to open the line. And so basically by October, uh, while the Confederates still have the high ground and they still have these imposing positions, they're no longer starving the U.S. troops out. And so they're able to to resupply. um, And Grant has this... Tension of of breaking out, and not only and he doesn't want to retreat from Chattanooga. He mm-hmm. wants to break out and push the Confederates back into Georgia. Um, the Confederate Army is reinforced as well. Uh, the Confederate government had dispatched from the Army of Northern Virginia James Longstreet's corps mm-hmm. to support Braxton Bragg. Bragg and Longstreet. Hate each other uh, <laughs> is sort of a, is putting it mildly, I guess. They really do not get along. Mm. Um, and there's this debate about about who's really in command. Oh, um, wow. And so, to not get into all the detail, Longstreet leaves. Longstreet, Bragg with his army or with, just with his army, but okay. he goes towards Nashville where um, mm. General, U, U, U.S. Army General uh, Ambrose Burnside has his army there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is, is that if the thinking goes that if he dispatches Longstreet, if Bragg sends Longstreet to attack Nashville, that that might force Grant to abandon Chattanooga, uh, or it mm-hmm. would, or it could, if they capture Nashville, mm-hmm. then that would completely change the, the situation. Um, mm-hmm. That, of course, just does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, it it completely fails. But excuse me, Knoxville, not Nashville. Sorry, no. um, Knoxville, Tennessee. No, okay. And in any event, it doesn't work, it fails, but Bragg is not too upset about that because he's now rid himself of what he sees as an impediment in Uh James Longstreet. Uh, The end of November, uh, November 24th and 25th, is when Grant makes his move, uh, and he envisions sort of a dual flanking attack with Sherman's army attacking on what would be the Confederate left at Mm -hmm. Missionary Ridge and Hooker's Corps attacking on Lookout Mountain. And there's some logistical problems. Effectively, Sherman's soldiers attack the wrong hill. Uh, their maps weren't very accurate, and they end up attacking a hill that's undefended uh, and realize <laughs> and realize uh, that's not the right ridge. Right. Um, and so that kind of delays things a little bit, at least yeah. on Sherman's side. But Hooker actually achieves some great success in... in moving his soldiers up and and what was supposed to be kind of a diversionary tactic on Lookout Mountain actually becomes a, a great um, success story for the army at the time they they forced the Confederate defenders off and and now they control the highest point oh. um, on the 25th Grant pushes the the battle more he, he tells Sherman to yeah continue the attack mm-hmm. uh, Sherman gets bogged down. Um, it's very difficult taking missionary Ridge. he's getting it's mm. he's not moving as quickly as or as he's not advancing as quickly as he'd hoped um, so grant orders general thomas and his army in the center of the cumberland in the center to begin attacking the confederate center at the base of the ridge mm. and there's effectively confederate entrenchments there and then artillery on the top of the ridge what ends up happening is thomas's troops advance pretty successfully and they capture these trenches and force the confederates up and then they realize of their own sort of accord we're in a really bad position now because the confederate artillery can just shoot down on us Mm -hmm. so kind of without orders from thomas they continue their advance because they realize there's two things we can do we Mm -hmm. can stay here and get get bombarded by this artillery pummeled or we can retreat back Mm -hmm. and that's not gonna that's why would we have fought for this ground if we're just mm-hmm. going to retreat back? So they continue the fight up, and Grant wow. immediately is sort of like, "What are they doing? I didn't order that." And Thomas is like, I, "I didn't order it either." <laughs> uh, but it, it, they advance with, with uh, the, bigger. Yeah, bigger. and they and they <laughs> manage to get up, and they they divide the Confederate uh, defenders wow. in two. Uh, they capture the center. Um, that's going to, of course, shift things, which is going to allow Sherman's army to kind of come mm-hmm. through. And then uh, the next, on, tw- on November 26th, Bragg retreats from from Chattanooga. Oh, wow. uh, and it's, it's a resounding victory for, for Grant and Sherman mm-hmm. and Thomas. Um, it's not without its costs, though. Mm. Uh, the U.S. is going to suffer about 5,800 casualties, um, mm. about 750 killed, 4,700 or so wounded. Uh, that's out of about fifty-six thousand engaged. Hmm. Wow. Uh, the Confederate casualties are are, are higher. They're about sixty-six hundred, um, with about thirty-six, three hundred sixty killed and about twenty-one hundred or so wounded. Oh. Um, and that's out of about forty-four thousand engaged. So mm-hmm. the, it's it's a costly defeat for Braxton Bragg's army, and it's a it's a great victory for Grant's army. Um, the issue is going to be similar to what, what Meade faced in Gettysburg as a follow-up. Oh. And it's after a battle like that, after this long slog, mm-hmm. and as the enemy is retreating, how vigorously do you pursue them? Mm-hmm. And just for the sake of reality, it's like you you can't, you need time to regroup. And Grant mm-hmm. finds that out. Um, they, there's a pursuit, but it's not real. it's, they chase basically Bragg deeper into Georgia, mm-hmm. but there's not that, great follow-up right where they destroy the so so mm-hmm. uh bragg will uh be replaced um command uh, he will lose his command after this uh, mm-hmm. but uh if you looked at the, the strategic situation chattanooga great victory for mm-hmm. the u.s army but again by the by november of 1863 by december of 1863 uh there are still some. There's still a lot of work to be done.
0: Right, because Chattanooga is a, is a major transportation hub. Is it, it is, it, and it
1: was known as yeah the the basically the gateway to the South. It's a major mm-hmm. transportation hub, uh, rivers, rail lines, um, and so it's going to become a major base of operations mm-hmm. that the U.S. Army is going to use to launch its subsequent invasions of the South because that, that's a good place where they can stockpile, mm-hmm. uh, prepare, move people, people, material, food, right. everything in there, and then launch operations from there. Yeah. What happened to Longstreet? So so Longstreet's going to eventually uh, find his way back to the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, wow. His He will return, um, which was kind of the intention the entire time. Oh. Uh, it was never that he was going to stay with with the Army of, of mm-hmm. Tennessee. He was going to return to the Army of Northern Virginia. He was just kind of sent as a way to, to help. Bragg, of course, takes a slight against him. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But, yeah, by the time 1864 rolls around, Longstreet is back with the Army of... Northern Virginia as General Lee's kind of right-hand man. So now after the success at Chattanooga,
0: Lincoln, um, as he has this revolving door of of commanders of the Union, uh, he makes another overall change in Union command. So who does he put in and how does it work
1: out? So, yeah, it's up to this point, Lincoln's major frustration has been with Army commanders. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going from McClellan... Through, um, you know, there was McClellan, and then there was Burnside, then there was Hooker, yeah. McClellan. I mean, it, just, it kept going around <laughs> right. until finally me. But that, these were these were army commanders, right? These are commanders of the Army of the Potomac. Um, and then there was there were some similar reshufflings with armies in the West. Uh, General Henry Halleck uh, was in charge for a while there, replaced by Grant. Then Halleck, um, and, and part of this stemmed from the actual army organization at the time what was allowed Mm -hmm. congressionally and and, and Mm in there wasn't an authorization for a general officer position above major general Mm -hmm. and if you kind of think about what that means is that a lot of these commanders whether they're army commanders division commanders corps commanders they all carry the same rank and sometimes it's we're talking days or two where they're that separates one from the other. Right. And so there's there's a, a natural inclination there for some some combativeness. Yeah. Earlier in the war, Lincoln had attempted to make George McClellan overall commander of all U of all the US army. Um he stayed in the east and he didn't really have a lot of care or concerns about the western theater um after Okay. After, the, after the seven days' battles in, in Richmond, he changes that. Mm-hmm. Um, what he does with, with General Grant is he says, I'm going to nominate you for a third star, and I'm wow. going to put you in command as general-in-chief of the Army, so in control of mm-hmm. the entire U.S. Army. Uh, General Halleck earlier had kind of been promoted to like chief, a version of chief of staff, but mm-hmm. really only had administrative control. Mm-hmm. This puts General Grant in command of the entire U.S. Army. He chooses to stay in the East and oversee the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. but he is now devising strategy. He's now devising plans, and he is now overall commander. And you mentioned now with
0: his uh, absence from uh, the West, he puts is it Sherman,
1: right? Yes. He puts Sherman in charge there. He's going to put Sherman in charge of the Western armies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's sort of his, his main subordinate, his number two. Uh, and as I kind of mentioned, Grant is he's going to choose to accompany the Army of the Potomac, but he leaves the Army commanders in mm-hmm. command. So George Meade remains in command of the Army of the Potomac. Oh. Grant is just along uh, with them. But he's devising the overall strategy
0: um, for the entire Union Army, not just right. the Potomac. Right, and he's going
1: to have some meetings with, with Sherman and, and with um, President Lincoln, mm-hmm. um, and they're going to kind of come up with, here's our approach to... To finally ending this thing. Uh, Matt,
0: is there anything else that um, that you want to cover that we didn't bring up? I think that's about
1: about it, I think, for, for All this. All right.
0: Well, good, then, because now we get to my favorite part. We're going to talk about some HUA trivia. So, um, you know, a little piece of um, exciting, interesting trivia about this time period. So do you have anything to share?
1: You know, I was trying to think of a good one, and, and uh, I, I was just... For some reason, army medical stuff has been in my head recently. Oh, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know if it's exciting or fun, but uh, I think it's very interesting. Is is one of the big misconceptions about um, Civil War medicine and Civil War medical treatment is this idea that uh, you know the soldiers, if you're wounded at all, you're these butcher doctors are going to come cut your you know amputate your limb off. Oh, and, yeah. and there's mm-hmm. no uh, no anesthesia, everything like that. Um, and that's really not not true. Actually, uh, about ninety, I think ninety five percent of Civil war operations were conducted with some sort of ana- anesthesia. Um, oh. Whether it was mo- usually ether, but um, oh, okay. so mm-hmm. there. So the the kind of or some ho- rum or whiskey. Uh, actually, actually, <laughs> rum was usually rum and whiskey was either given after, but it really wasn't oh. wasn't uh, the main one. It was usually ether or chloroform. Okay. And um, yeah, so the Hollywood image of the yeah. you know bite the bullet and and the awake mm-hmm. um, amputation just really isn't isn't accurate oh, wow. and uh, and really these doctors had come to a you know the, the reason they did amputation so freely was not because they didn't know any better it was because that was they understood that these these soft lead bullets could wow. would shatter bone and, and lead to a lot of subsequent infection. so the mm-hmm. best way to actually save a life and prevent subsequent infection was if someone oh. was shot in a, in a mm-hmm. limb usually yeah. amputation. Um, oh, but so okay. it's, so a lot of, so there's a lot of misconceptions out yeah. there. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that up because there, you know, um, from what a lot of
0: people know today from movies, uh, TV, uh, you know, those images are out there. Yeah. And they make a big deal about that. What's interesting too. So no, I think that's, uh, that's a great point and, and I'm glad we we're able to clear that up. Um, but in a lot of our army museums, um, one, of, one of the things I find fascinating are the medical kits uh, throughout the years but to see i know in our new national museum of the u.s army they have a great display of the medical kits from um, each era but uh, the civil war one it's just scary to look at <laughs> <laughs> yeah with the the bone saw and, the, yeah. and all that yeah yeah uh, so uh, uh pretty interesting well cool well, well thank you so much matt for your discussion and insights today about the civil war years of 1863 and 1864. and if anyone wants to learn more about the civil war and learn more about army history in general then I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. We have a great pamphlet series called The U.S. Army Campaigns of the Civil War. They are available as free PDF downloads, so check them out. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of the U.S. Army history. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time, we're history.
1: The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.